0: Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. You'll find that on page 1018. We're going to give attention to the first 14 verses of this account in Luke. It's going to contain two accounts that we're familiar with. The account of Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem. And then Jesus being born in a very uh, humble circumstance. But then we're also going to tune in to the first half of the shepherd's story in the fields where they hear the pronouncement of the angels. And so as we read these verses that are uh, very familiar to us, having um, spent a lot of time perhaps hearing others read from them or reading it yourself this Christmas season, keep this um, Keep this sort of theme in mind. Keep the sovereignty of God in your minds as we read this passage as the one who is in control over all of history and how God is the one who orchestrates every single detail on this earth. Let's read together. Luke chapter 2, the first 14 verses. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that in it we would see Jesus and that you would be glorified in the proclamation of this news. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Consider with me the life cycle of a tulip. The life cycle of a tulip is quite a wonder of nature that begins when the bulb is planted, not in in the spring, but in the fall. Now, that seems very counterintuitive to to gardening, but hear me out. Gardeners carefully place these onion-shaped bulbs uh, into the ground, often to a depth of about five inches, And ensuring that proper depth is crucial because tulip bulbs require a vital period of dormancy during the cold winter months in order to thrive. And so as the bulbs are under this blanket of soil, the dropping temperatures signal to them to undergo change that is unseen to the eye of the gardener, such as the development of its roots and so on. And then during this time, the bulb is hard at work, preparing for uh, this future burst of growth that the warming spring weather will bring to it. And by undergoing this very important uh, cold period, the roots are able to proliferate and they extend deep into the nutrient-rich soil. And so when warm weather arrives in spring, um, this bulb is triggered, growth accelerates, and uh, the shoot then opens up into a beautifully colored tulip flower for all to enjoy. Now, what's fascinating to me is this fact that a lot of growth and preparation for tulips uh, takes place during the fall and wintry cold months. Now, the fall, fall is tolerable. It's semi-warm, my, one of my favorite seasons. But the winter... Blustery conditions, snowstorms, frostbite, ice-cold temperatures that freeze your bones, requiring the warmth of a heated home. Very overcast skies, which lead to seasonal depression in many of us. But underground, unseen to our eyes, the tulip bulb is preparing for spring when it will burst forth in breathtaking beauty. What's even more beautiful is that we have an ultimate gardener, so to speak, who has prepared, who has ordained all of earth's history from before the foundations of the world. And in this world, in this this history that you and I participate in, there were conditions that were set for the arrival of the Son of God in the flesh. And like the wintry months where the tulip bulb is being prepared, the earthly conditions surrounding the birth of our Lord were not ideal. They seem to spell out very difficult appearances. But the one thing that I want us to look at, this great theme this morning, is that despite earthly circumstances, God's work continues unhindered. Despite humble or difficult circumstances, God's purposes will advance undeterred behind the scenes. So we as believers, those who believe in God and Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we need to look beyond surface level earthly circumstances and trust in God's continued unseen work that supersedes all apparent chaos and turbulence that we find in this world, both on a global scale, but then also in our own individual lives in times of toil and trouble. And what we're going to see in our text is that that's portrayed very uh, very wonderfully for us in the first advent of our Lord and the context surrounding his birth, the most Uh, Beautiful occasion for the birth of our Savior, and so in our text this morning, we'll see that theme. Keep that theme in mind. Despite earthly circumstances, God's work continues unhindered. You see that theme woven throughout three different movements. We see God's maneuvering of human events for divine purposes. We see God's manifesting a miracle through humbly humble circumstances. And earthly means, and then God's first Christmas message to those of seeming insignificance. We'll take uh, our turn through those three points as we go forward. So first off, we see that despite earthly and historical circumstances surrounding the Christmas narrative, God is behind the scenes of history bringing about his goodwill. God maneuvers human events for his purposes. But even even his maneuvering of events within history, all of that was prepared, decreed, and ordained even before history began. Now, the time surrounding Jesus' birth was not necessarily a pretty one. We read in the first verse of our text that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, all the world doesn't mean the entire globe. It's just the then-known world of the Roman Empire. This Roman Empire was born through military conquest and political maneuvering. In its rise to power, this realm saw numerous regimes overturned as the next guy took over, uh, often very violently. Its competing uh, factions vied for control. Its path through history was marked by betrayal, Vengeance, manipulation, and typically tragedy for the poor soul who was on the wrong side uh, in those times. And so, by the time Rome completed its takeover or subjugation of ancient Israel, uh, its rise to power had come at a very heavy cost and destroyed lives and political chaos. Rome was a war machine. But even before the Roman Empire was born, it was a republic. Republics would typically give way to empires. But even that Roman Republic was marked by the very same characteristics. And some of us may not know this, but even before there was a republic, Rome was actually a monarchy ruled by kings, not the Roman Senate or an emperor. It's a very fascinating history. And so we stand here today remembering the glorious narrative of our Savior's birth. But we must not forget that his birth in Bethlehem was no accident, but it was the culmination of God's divine orchestration throughout history. Hear me out here, a little historical exercise for us. If we we were to go all the way to the very beginning of Rome, If it wasn't for the proud founding of the Roman monarchy in 753 B.C., 753 years before Christ, if it wasn't even for that, there would have been no centuries-long rule of kings to set the stage. And then if not for the political revolution that birthed the Roman Republic, In the 6th century B.C., the mechanisms of empire would not have been established. If it wasn't for the bloody civil wars of the 1st century B.C. with the ambition of Julius Caesar, his assassination on the Ides of March would never have occurred. And without Caesar's death, there would have been no vengeance sworn by his adopted son, Augustus. Uh, No rising of Augustus as the first emperor of Rome. And without Augustus, there would have been no census. There would have been no census decreed that sent Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem. To the very place where prophecy foretold the Christ would be born. And so you can see how from the very foundation stones of Rome to the murderous betrayal of Caesar, the vanity of empires, God choreographed all of history to lead up to this very moment in time. Scripture says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4. Truly, God alone is the author of history And the fulfillment of prophecy. You see how he employs peoples and the chaos of nations and the proclamation of rulers to pave the way for his purposes to be manifested. As a Roman emperor, Augustus consolidated much power that was in the palm of his hand. And he decreed that a census be taken of his entire empire, but little did he know that he was a participant in the unfolding of God's glorious purposes. Isn't that cool? In his pride and in his hunger for power, Caesar called for the people to be numbered in his domain. And yet God utilized even this restless, authoritative person to set the stage for one who is to come, who is far greater than any ruler. Not another restless ruler, though, but one who is to be called the king of kings and the prince of peace. Unknown to Augustus, reigning all the way in Rome, that census was the impetus for this young couple, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, Mary and Joseph, to make a difficult journey that through them prophecy might be fulfilled. The prophet Micah says, "But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." We need to take courage from that this morning as We identify, so to speak, as pilgrims walking and journeying through this troublesome world, that if the Almighty God would see fit to usher in the incarnation of his Son through political turmoil and chaos, that God is still in control today. Though uh, chaos swirls around us, God remains sovereign over this groaning world. He works behind the scenes, accomplishing his will. Nothing takes God by surprise that takes place in world history. And through it all, he is shaping us, his chosen people, into daughters and sons of glory. And so we can have a great faith that no matter what happens to us in this weary world, our almighty God reigns. That babe that was born 2,000 years ago reigns. He reigns today, and one day we will reign with him in triumph. Moving through, we see how God manifested a miracle through humbly earthly means. Our text says in verse 6, While they were there, Mary and Joseph, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. What we're going to see, uh, we're going to get a glimpse here of how Jesus, the Savior of the world, was laid in a lowly manger. But in so doing so, that very act of doing that shows that God was using very humble circumstances to proclaim the birth of the Messiah. And that circumstance is very contrary to human expectations of grandeur. And even yet, in these humble circumstances, there very much is a message of grandeur. Look at the text where, when it says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, at first glance, that may seem uh, merely descriptive. It's really just saying that Mary gave birth... Uh, for the first time, or it could be indicating that Jesus' right of inheritance was as the firstborn. But there is more to this than meets the eye. As one commentator notes, the messianic themes that we've heard about in the preceding sermons and passages of Luke, preparing for this moment, they suggest that there's an allusion to Psalm 89 which says, I will make him the firstborn, speaking of the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's a psalm that speaks of God's promise to establish David's dynasty forever. And so what was true of David finds greater fulfillment in Christ, the greater David. There's a, a foreshadowing, you could say, between the first David and the greater David to come. And yet Jesus is no ordinary king. The reference to firstborn, it, it also connects to Jesus' preeminence over all rulers and authorities, even mightier kings like Caesar Augustus. And so in this one phrase, "firstborn son," you find biblical uh, clues already directing and pointing us to the kingship of Jesus as the eternal king in the line of David. There are hints already of, even as this baby, of his sovereignty demonstrated in his life, death, and resurrection as he grows into a man. This babe born to this poor couple in David's city of Bethlehem will turn out to be the highest king. Indeed, he is the son of God. And we bend the knee To this humble firstborn son, who is also the firstborn over all creation, firstborn from the dead, firstborn of many brothers and sisters, our king and our brother, Jesus. And yet this king was born and was laid in a feeding trough. When you study the place of where Jesus was born, it's actually very interesting. We imagine Mary and Joseph traveling late at night, uh, arriving in Bethlehem and searching for a room at an inn. Now, uh, the word translated as inn in the account of Luke is not referencing a hotel. It's not that kind of an inn. Travelers in ancient Judea, what they did when they traveled was they relied on the hospitality of relatives or fellow Jews to provide them room and board. And so it's likely that in the context of this census going on, that Mary and Joseph actually sought lodging at, uh, in the home of one of Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem. And yet we are told that there was no place for them there. Now, this doesn't mean that Joseph's relatives were being very cruel and shoved them out the door, That night, but that the guest room for some reason uh, was possibly already occupied. Probably because of this very census, there was multiple folks coming into town. Other relatives beat Mary and Joseph to the place where they could have been housed, so there was no room for them. So where would this couple stay? Well, peasant homes back then in ancient Israel uh, normally would have an attached stable or. You could say like a a cave-like lower level of the home. So if you were to go to the backside of the home, run down a couple of stairs, you would be in this underground uh, stable of sorts where animals were sheltered. And it was here that Mary and Joseph bedded down for the night among this livestock. Saddle packs for pillows and barnyard hay for bedding. You can imagine the scene. This king of kings was not born in a, in a palace or a hospital, but in a dimly lit barn. The creator of the cosmos and the light of the world makes his entry wrapped in rags and laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. I think us in our germaphobe culture would find that very difficult to do today, wouldn't we? <laughs> But at this point in the text, there's no human witnesses besides Mary and Joseph to mark the occasion. Now, we're going to see uh, soon that this good news is shared with the shepherds of Bethlehem. And so eventually, as, we, as we'll see tomorrow, they're going to make their way to the stable. Uh, despite what uh, a lot of nativity sets show us today, the magi will not show up here. They only do a couple years later when uh, jo- uh, Jesus is probably a toddler and their gifts of the magi will be given to him. And the angels rejoice. The, uh, the denizens of Bethlehem, however, continue to sleep. They are unaware that in this peasant home, in a stable under the house or around the house, that the greatest event in human history is actually taking place. The king who could have been born with fanfare in Jerusalem is chosen to be born in an animal stall in lowly Bethlehem. And so what that does is is it really shows us, the incarnation shows us that God is pleased to execute his will in humble circumstances, even in this humble birth of the king of kings. And so when we consider these humble circumstances, we also see those associated with that great theme of God working unhindered despite earthly circumstances. Who better to share the good news of the incarnation with than those of insignificance? Now, despite the odd setting of the Son of God being laid in a manger, an angel and the multitude of heavenly hosts affirmed this great birth not to kings, but first to those of unassuming earthly circumstances. Luke 2 verse 8 says that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now who were these shepherds exactly? Well in ancient Israel shepherding was quite the trade. You either Uh, had a shepherd in your family or you probably knew one personally. They were all over the place. Uh, Some shepherds lived in farming villages and so they tended to the family's sheep uh, strictly in the fields surrounding that village. And so these shepherds in the fields that night were probably themselves also from Bethlehem or near Bethlehem. And these village shepherds were typically younger members of the household. We can think of of David when he was probably just but a teenager handling the sheep. So it's actually quite interesting to think that all these shepherds who visited the baby Jesus that night were probably all boys or teenagers. And yet shepherds were often considered insignificant in the history of ancient Israel. There was possibly a tendency to to view them as the uneducated, uh, rough, around the edges probably, but also untrustworthy for a number of reasons. And yet it was to these young gentlemen, these lowly shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem, that the Lord was pleased to alert the joyous occasion of the birth of the Messiah. The shepherds are there, they're keeping watch over their flocks uh, at night as they have done countless times before, when suddenly a radiant light pierces the darkness, and an angel of the Lord appears in dazzling glory, and these shepherds are feel, uh, filled with great fear. Now this angel, what it does is it calls to mind uh, the prophecies of Isaiah, who foretold that in the last days, the days commencing with the coming of the Messiah, that God's glory would be manifested to all people. Isaiah writes, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now the glory of the Lord dwelling with uh, his people, it recalls those Old Testament accounts of God's glory filling the tabernacle and coming upon the temple. But here, in our text, there is no temple. Only a band of poor shepherds keeping watch under the stars. Not realizing that the ultimate temple of God was born in a manger not too far from them. And yet, even to them, these shepherds, we could say the least of these God now reveals his glory and his splendor through his messenger of good news. And it is good news indeed. When the angel says, I bring good news, uh, that word in Greek, good news, is the verbal form of the word gospel. The verbal form of the word gospel. This angel is proclaiming the gospel to the shepherds for the first time. As Isaiah the prophet pronounced, comfort for the people who were in exile— Now comes one who will lead the true exiles out of slavery to sin and back to paradise. One who will establish God's kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace forever. This baby who was born is the Christ, the long-awaited anointed one, the babe who fulfills all the ancient promises made to Old Testament Israel that there would be a king. Indeed, one who's in the line of the King David, that one of his descendants would rule as Messiah forever over God's people. And he's not just the king over Israel, but he's the divine king over all. And the sign for the shepherds to identify this king is one wrapped in rags. Sometimes we think of swaddling cloth as this nice, cozy, fluffy thing. It's actually pieces of rags that they would wrap around babies in ancient Israel. Lying in a manger, the almighty savior and prince of peace comes not as we would expect. He doesn't come with riches, earthly power, earthly riches, earthly splendor, but as helpless and poor, lying in a dirty feeding trough meant for animals. In infinite love and mercy, Christ, as Paul says in Philippians, humbled himself to the most vulnerable of states for us. And this very birth was first pronounced to those most vulnerable of people in Israel society, that being the shepherds. Well, what do we do with all of this? This theme here of God working through unseemingly earthly circumstances brings to mind this idea of paradox. The Christmas story is one of great paradox that's a word that may be unfamiliar to some of us a paradox is something that seems untrue or seems contradictory and yet in those situations it holds very deep truth and the birth of our savior jesus christ is in some ways the greatest paradox in the most amazing way consider the circumstances of his coming he entered our broken world at a chaotic time in human history with political turmoil and oppression under Roman rule. And yet the paradox is that God ordained and uses this mess to bring about his perfect plan. Paradox number one. Number two, the king of kings is born not in a palace, but in a barn and placed in a feeding trough. Paradox number three. Who first hears of his holy birth? Not the prime minister, not the president, not the king, not royalty or religious leaders, but poor shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. In the paradox of Christmas, we find the mighty God coming down to meet us in the most humble of ways. But perhaps the greatest paradox, paradox sorry in world history is really where the Christmas story is headed. We don't read of it in our text this morning, but we do know that if we were to read more and continue on to the ending of Luke, that Jesus, great paradox number four, was born to die. As the carol goes, Christ was born to save. This child in the manger came to be the sacrificial lamb offered for his people, offered for the sins of the world. And in his birth, in the advent of his birth, in some ways you could say that we find the advent of his death. So that through death, his death, and through his resurrection, we as his beloved children may truly live. This is the great paradox of Christmas, that those tiny newborn soft hands that grasped at Mary and Joseph would one day have cold nails driven through them as Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross. The soft wisps of hair on This little infant's head that Mary cradled would one day be matted by dried blood born from the sharp thorns of a crown. And the newborn cries that pierced that holy night would be echoed by the agonized cry of the son to the father as he gave his life as a ransom for many. The Christmas story should never be told without looking forward to the cross. And so as you celebrate his birth, do you also remember the terrible price paid willingly out of his compassionate love for you and for me? But we don't end at the cross. The story goes on. Because the tomb could not contain the Son of God. Out of the darkness came resurrection light. By his sacrifice, we are redeemed. And in his triumph over death, we share in the promise of life everlasting. And when Christ ascended into glory to sit at the right hand of his Father, he sent his Spirit to be with you. And he is certainly with you this Christmas season, despite what earthly circumstances look like. For some of you, this Christmas brings grief or hardship Perhaps you're celebrating this joyful season for the first time without a beloved family member or a friend by your side, or perhaps that this is one of many Christmases that have been spent this way. Perhaps as you witness the consumerism and the festivities around you, you're uh, greatly reminded of how much you do not have and are grown more aware of your own struggles, wondering how you will make ends meet. Perhaps there's strife or tension among your own family that makes a merry Christmas that much farther to understand. Well, friends, this first Advent is for you. No matter what earthly troubles surround you, Jesus Christ is Lord, just as the angel declared to the poor shepherds so long ago. And this same Jesus identifies with your pain and with your grief. He draws near to you when others pull away. He embraces you as his precious precious child, even when the world turns cold against you. His love for you transcends any earthly comfort or family bond. It is far better to be embraced by the hands of the Savior's loving arms eternally than to have the short-lived affection that anyone on this earth could provide for you. Do you feel the heavy weight of sin and guilt upon your shoulders? Do you recall past mistakes, regrets, sins both large and small? Well, Jesus stands ready to unburden you and to set you free because he is gentle and lowly and humble of heart. He does not lord guilt over us or shame you further. With compassion, he offers you in your lowest of moments forgiveness. And so, amid the chaos and the sorrows that may cloud uh, this Christmas season, our call is is to fix our eyes upon heaven, just as the angels had told the shepherds to do, and to sing glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And as we wait for his second advent, his return, we take refuge in Christ the one in whom we find unspeakable joy and peace. This babe born in Bethlehem offers us hope that no earthly circumstance can diminish or destroy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great wonder and mystery, the great paradox of the Christmas story for what it means to your people. We thank you for Jesus and for his taking on human flesh to identify with us in our struggles. But yet for him to go to the cross and to undertake the punishment for sins that we so deserve. We thank you for his righteousness imputed to us that we can recognize the infinite wonders and glory Of the good news. Father, may our recognition of Christmas not be devoid of Easter, of resurrection, but may it not also be devoid of your Son's ascension to your right hand, to his sending the Spirit at Pentecost. And may all of this orient our gaze upon his final coming, his second advent. Spur us on, Lord, by the work of your Spirit within our hearts. May this message open and prick minds and hearts that we would be enabled to go forward and share the good riches of this news with those in humble circumstances. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.